Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, thanks for joining our podcast. We at least attempt every week to give uh, providers and pharmacists and prescribers the latest information in, in mostly pharmacotherapy uh, uh, stuff, whether it's a new study, whether it's a, a guideline, whether it's a new medication, whether it's an FDA thing, doesn't matter. We keep our ears to the ground and our eyes to the screen, if you will. And uh, when we come up with it, we try to, uh, to tell you all about it and try and place it in, in a context where it can be actionable for you in your practice, whether you're a pharmacist or a prescriber. So if you're a new listener, thank you for listening. If you're a longtime listener, we always appreciate you guys hanging on with us. Uh, today, we are going to talk about Paxlovid because I was telling Jake, who I'll be introducing here in a second, I have gotten just inundated in the last month with Paxlovid drug interaction questions. And so that tells me that between that and some of the other things I've been uh, discussing with my physicians about it, it's probably time to do kind of a quick update on Paxlovid. So to help me navigate all this and talk about this is my frequent uh, co-host and uh, definitely co-pilot for the podcast, Jake Galdo. So Jake, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And uh, as longtime listeners know that this show just literally would not function without Jake in the, in the co-pilot seat. So I always appreciate him having him here. So first up, we're going to talk about Paxlovid because of course, you know, it's been out now for several months. It is one of two oral antiviral medications that is under an EUA by the FDA for the treatment of, of COVID. And of course, many of you remember, and, and I sure do, that when the initial announcement from Pfizer came out that uh, the drug was decreasing hospitalizations and deaths by about. 80% that, of course, you know, caused, you know, a great happiness. And, and I think in some quarters, some suspicion about, well, that's great, but can I actually see the study sort of stuff? And, and certainly in kind of, uh, you know, way out there conspiracy theorists, I'm sure there was a whole bunch of other stuff that I, I try not to go in there because it just depresses me. But, you know, so when the paper was finally published in the New England Journal of Medicine, we finally got our hands on that. And, and so just to summarize the study very quick, remember that, that the primary analysis of, of the study looked at, at patients who had received Paxlovid within uh, three to five days of onset. When it was all said and done, they had five of 697 patients or about 0.7% of patients who received Paxlovid being admitted to the hospital at day 28. Whereas in the placebo group, it was 6.45% of the group. So 6.45% of the placebo arm and these were all unvaccinated patients who were at high risk uh, were hospitalized compared to 0.72. And so obviously that was statistically significant. When the data was extended to patients who uh, had five days on Set, it was very similar numbers, a little bit lower. So bottom line was that within five days, it seemed that it could dramatically decrease the risk of hospitalization. When they drilled down more and took a look at death, that the level of death was also significantly reduced in patients who received Paxlovid compared to placebo. So, you know, that's what the study was based on. And certainly that's what, when I'm looking at whether a patient is a patient as a candidate for Paxlovid, I'm not really looking for information as far as its effect on symptoms. So they didn't really look in that study about, gee, do people have less upper respiratory symptoms, so they get their sense of smell and taste back faster. They didn't look at any of that. And so 
because of that, um, you know, many have uh, have argued, well, you know, Paxlovid didn't do anything for me. Well, you know, if you didn't end up in the hospital, you could argue maybe it did do something for you. Of course, you'll never know. And that's always going to be one of the problems with, the, with this kind of medication is that if you don't end up at the hospital, you can never say for sure, well, was it the Paxlovid that I took or what I have not gone into the hospital anyway. So, you know, there's been, I think, a little bit of blowback um, about using uh, Paxlovid for COVID um, uh, in a couple of quarters. And one is that, again, you know, it's going to be hard in the at the individual patient level to say, you know, gee, you know, you wouldn't have gotten to the hospital anyway, or, or you wouldn't have gotten super sick. So, you know, you know, Paxlovid may or may not have helped you. The other big thing, and, and this is something that that many have have, have called on Pfizer to help out with is that the study was done entirely in unvaccinated patients. So the question about, you know, what is the benefit of Paxlovid in vaccinated patients is still completely unanswered. There's been a couple of hints, shall we say, from Pfizer that their data has suggested that it's effective in, in vaccinated patients too, but we don't have a number, we don't have a paper, we don't have a, have, a, have a press release really to kind of go off on that. So, you know, some of my physicians have argued, you know, if I have a triple vax patient who's at low risk, do they really need to be on Paxlovid? And one could argue from an evidence-based medicine perspective that that population was not studied in this in the uh, paper that got the Pfizer, the EUA for the drug. And I, and I totally get that. The other question, of course, is with the new variants out there, you know, of course, the, the Paxlovid was studied primarily with the alpha and some delta variant, you know, what, what is its role as far as Omicron variants? And again, we don't have solid data on that. There's been a couple of preprints that have been done that have shown so far that Paxlovid seems to retain its efficacy against all variants, including the known Omicron variants that, that have popped up in, in the last little while. So again, you know, we, we have a couple of preprint studies. There was a study that was recently peer-reviewed and published in antiviral research that suggested the same thing. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, will that continue to, to be, be so as time goes on? We just really don't know the answer to that, of course. So I think that the whole notion of, of using Paxlovid in everybody who has COVID is probably not a great idea. Um, fortunately, uh, for the individual prescriber, the, you know, the FDA actually has a very nice checklist that they have. We'll put a, a link to that in our show notes that it's basically just an eligibility screening checklist tool for prescribers and can kind of walk through whether this patient is a candidate to be on them. It also has a nice section on some of the common drug interactions you're going to run into, which is the other big thing that I really wanted to spend quite a bit of time talking about today is drug interactions. Because as I was telling Jake, before we started recording, I've probably gotten about 30 or 35 in the last two or three weeks, um, uh, drug interaction questions about uh, patients who are on medications that the prescriber would like to start Paxlovid on. And I'm going to say right out of the gate that the end-all be-all to my knowledge of how to find out answers to these questions is the University of Liverpool COVID-19 Drug Interaction website. And it is very well done. It is a comprehensive. It gives you all the literature that has been published to date on, on individual interactions. And keeping in mind that all these interactions, or at least nearly all these interactions, stem from the fact that Paxlovid contains one antiviral as well as ritonavir, which boosts the drug concentrations of the first antiviral antiviral, much as earlier HIV regimens had ritonavir-boosted antiviral regimens. It's the same thing here. And of course, ritonavir is one of the most potent blockers of the cytochrome P450 system. So of course, yes, there's going to be 8 million, billion, zillion interactions. And I think if you just look up some of this stuff on your phone or your computer drug interaction software, um, it's just basically going to say, nope, forget it, you can't use it. And I've been surprised that in some cases, uh, you can do some workarounds. 
rounds with some of the more common um, interactions that we're going to you see with apaxodid and, and medications that patients are on. So I thought I'd take a couple of seconds and just talk about some three or four pretty common drugs that I think you're going to see these patients on. And does this mean it's an absolute no-go for, for Paxlovid or is there a way to kind of get around it? And the first one is uh, the DOAX, in particular, Pixaban and Rivaroxaban. We know that both the DOAX, or really all the DOAX, are uh, substrates of both uh, P-glycoprotein as well as cytochrome P450, and that, and that they're metabolized through as particularly 3A4. So as you might imagine, concomitant administration of anything with ritonavir, including Paxlovid, with uh, uh, the DOAX is, is probably going to be expected to increase uh, levels of, of the DOAX due to the blockade of cytochrome CYP3A4 and P-glycoprotein inhibition. So the product label just says don't use, right? Um, though interestingly in the U.S., uh, the, the U.S. Uh, inpatients are on ritonavir, it does give the option uh, for a Pixaban anyway to use it at a lower dose at 2.5 milligrams of BID instead of 5 milligrams of BID. The University of Liverpool website points out that, you know, while we don't have any published data and won't for a while, Paxlovid, that if we take a look at, at, at people who may have HIV and we're on some of these medications, uh, we might be able to see what the effect of ritonavir might be. And they note that there's been a couple of papers that have looked at this stuff. For example, they found that no adverse outcomes were reported in six HIV-infected patients who were treated with reduced dose of, of, of a Pixaban, so 2.5 twice daily, while on ritonavir-boosted regimens. And so in this small case series, they suggested that that, that would work. So what the University of, of Liverpool recommends, and I think this is a good recommendation, I've certainly already made this recommendation to several of my clients in the DI center, is if someone is on a Pixaban and they need to be on Paxlovid, it really kind of depends on the indication that that they're on and the risk of bleed and, and risk of clot that would make the decision on what you do. So they suggest that for patients, for example, with atrial fib on a standard apixaban dose, that reducing the dose of apixaban to 2.5 during the five-day course of, of therapy and probably for two or three days after, and then reinitiating uh, the dose back up to its higher dose after that's completed is probably a safe and effective way to go. They note that in patients who have a high risk for VTE or any other arterial thromboembolism that might be on these medications, that it might be uh, that holding the drug or decreasing the drug might put the patient at high risk for a, a clot as opposed to an atrial fibrillation. The day-to-day -day risk of stroke is relatively low in most patients, so we can be down for two or three days and it's not that big of a deal. So they mentioned that in, in those patients that depending on the risk of the patient, if they just recently had a BTE or they have a history of multiple BTEs, that probably switching the patient temporarily to low molecular weight heparin might be an option. Or if it's been a long, long time and they've only had one and they're still being treated that maybe going to aspirin, so based on a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know, for the DOAX, it, it isn't an absolute no-go right away to be put on Paxlovid if you happen to be on these medications. I think that it does take a some time to sit, take a step back, take a look at why the patient is on the anticoagulant, and note whether the patient could be on a reduced dose of the anticoagulant versus a temporary switch to another anticoagulant that doesn't go through the cytochrome P450 system, like a low molecular heparin. Admittedly, the the, uh, the the logistics of that is going to be hard, right? You got somebody who's sick, and then you're going to say, well, on top of that, you need to inject yourself with this stuff for two times a day. And again, I, I would urge prescribers who are doing that if they don't have the resources in their own clinic, you know, again, as always, tooting the horn of, horn of pharmacists that, you know, uh, there, are, there are pharmacies out there 
there who can definitely help you as far as getting the drug ordered, getting it, getting the education of, of, of an oxyparin for the patient and, and, the, and everything else that's associated with it. So, so that's one example, I think, of, of a drug interaction, which doesn't mean an automatic no-go uh, if, you're, if you're considering Paxlovid. The second uh, is, is statins, and, and, and the one I picked was a torvastatin, because in my neck of the woods, that's the one that's used the most. And so again, we all know that, that the statins are metabolized to at least to some degree through the cytochrome P450 system. And, you know, some are, are, are highly blocked through there, some aren't so much. So what the University of Liverpool website says is that you would expect uh, levels of the statin, uh, particularly torvastatin, to be elevated in, in patients who are on concomitant ritonavir regimens. And so, but their recommendation, and this is what I've been recommending as well, is that, again, nobody gets rebound hyperlipidemia if you stop, you know, Lipitor for three or four days. And so what they're recommending is that if, if someone is on a statin and you need to start Paxlovid therapy, it is acceptable to go ahead and just have them stop the statin therapy on day one of a Paxlovid therapy. They can continue that for five days and then probably restart day three after completing the Paxlovid, you can restart the statin back up. So basically patient would be uncovered with a statin for about a total of about eight days. And that seems reasonable. And again, you know, it would be very low likelihood to cause harm as far as any sort of a problem with, with high lipid levels in the patient and would absolutely avoid the serious interaction of probably rhabdo or something along those lines in these patients. So that's basically considering temporary discontinuation. The third medication that I've been asked quite a bit about is amiodarone. And this is pretty tricky because, of course, as we know, amiodarone is used a lot, especially in atrial fibrillation patients. And it is it has some of the most uh, bizarre pharmacokinetics of probably any drug in the pharmaco, uh, pharmacopoeia. We know that you know it, it's extensively metabolized through a number of cytochrome P450 systems. We know that it has an unbelievably long elimination half-life on the course of months. And its volume distribution is incredibly high, and it really gets into every little nook and cranny in the body, which of course is why it has so many bizarre side effects and adverse drug reactions, you know, from, and really just about every organ system of the body. And so the question comes up, well, you know, again, I have somebody on, on amiodarone who might be a candidate for Paxlovid, you know, is there, is there some way that we can stop the amiodarone or do something to adjust this? And unfortunately, the answer is probably no. And so this is going to be one of those cases where if somebody's on amiodarone, given the long half-life of the medication and the, the extensive metabolism through the cytochrome P450 system, co-administration of anything with ritonavir is, is contraindicated. And the big side effect, I, you know, I don't think I'd worry too much about lung damage or thyroid problems or something like that, but the big one is probably going to be bradyarrhythmias because you're going to get significantly higher higher uh, plasma levels of the drug. And that's going to take weeks for it to basically get sussed out because of, of the blockade of, of the cytochrome P450 system. So amiodarone is going to be one of those cases where just holding the drug while the patient's taking Paxlovid is not going to work just because of the long half-life of the drug. And unfortunately, this is probably going to be a no-go. So in a case like that, you know, one has to consider could they, are if you're close enough to a hospital that has outpatient infusion services, could you get them to the infusion center to take a look at, at an at a another like remdesivir or some other type of thing, or molupenavir can be used as well. It has its own problems, of course. So that's, you know, that's something else you'd have to take into your mind. It's probably less effective. So again, you'd probably probably want to take a look at patient's overall risk and things along those lines. And then finally, the, the last example I kind of wanted to give is, and we've had a couple of these already, is, is, is tacrolimus. And this is a real tricky because again, you know, who is at highest risk for going on to serious complications, even if vaccinated with, with against covid 
by SARS-CoV-2 and it's going to be patients who are immunocompromised and that's whether they have you know cancer or they have some immunocompromising you know uh, condition or we have them on immunocompromising meds so as you might imagine uh, uh, transplant physicians and, and, and oncologists and, and you know and, and the physicians who deal with these patients are quite nervous about their patients getting COVID because of the high risk you know even a vaccinated uh, they do have a substantially higher risk of serious outcomes including hospitalization and death and so you might imagine that they'd say well gee you know, if there's, a, if there's a medication we can use, could we use uh, a Paxlovid? Now, the problem is that the backbone of most transplant regimens is, is a calcineurin inhibitor, and tacrolimus is certainly the most common one in the United States. And it is, again, as anyone will tell you who works with these those medications, it's, it's another drug that's extensively metabolized through cytochrome P453A4. It's also a substrate of P-lycoprotein. So as you might imagine, concomitant administration with ritonavir is going to profoundly, and this is this is not my words, this is actually the words of the universal liberal, profoundly increase tacrolimus levels and rapidly reach toxic levels. So again, you would normally think that that would be a no-go. Well, I'm sorry, you know, we, we can't risk this. But in fact, fortunately, there's been some research of using ritonavir in HIV patients who are transplant patients as well, and it's found that there might be an out. And the out is basically... If you're in an area where you can get frequent therapeutic drug monitoring for tacrolimus, so this is going to be require some cooperation between the transplant physician or the physician monitoring and, and dealing with the immunosuppressive regimen and the prescribing physician who's prescribing the Paxlovid, um, some communication between the two is required. And what, what, what they say is that if you're in an area where frequent therapeutic drug monitoring can be done, you can use Paxlovid if you hold all tacrolimus doses during therapy from days one to five. So uh, the day you start the tacrolimus or day you start the Paxlovid, they stop the tacrolimus basically. And then at day three, measure a single tacrolimus level and at that level of subtherapeutic, give a single dose of whatever the patient's maintenance therapy is and that's it. And then assess again on day six and seven to see where the concentrations are once concentrations drop below the therapeutic range, then you can go ahead and, and, and restart the, the uh, or drop below the, 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 the toxic range, excuse me, and are in the therapeutic range, then you can go ahead and restart the level of the drug. In most cases, that's going to be between eight and 10 days after the start of the, of the Paxlovid, depending on drug levels. So they note that this has already been looked at and has been published in a, a couple of studies where they've done some case series on these patients and has followed this regimen, basically, and it basically found that if you hold the tacrolimus dosing completely during Paxlovid administration, get a level at day three, and whether or not you give a single dose, and then check a level at day six, seven, and just keep checking doses. And once they're in the therapeutic range, you can go and restart their level, basically. If the concentrations are super therapeutic, uh, patients uh, should be continued uh, to not get the drug. If the concentrations are therapeutic uh, at day six or seven, some have advocated that you can restart the dose, at, uh, the tacrolimus dose at 50% of the baseline dose. Um, but again, basically the bottom line is frequent assessment is, is needed to make sure you don't become toxic on, on tacrolimus. So there was a, a, a paper that was just published in the American Journal of, of Transplantation and basically followed this guidance to, to do this. And they basically found that levels all began downtrend in a, in a group of patients uh, that followed this regimen and uh, became uh, low on day eight or nine. And there was no differences in tacrolimus levels in patients who were on tacrolimus immediate release versus extended release. So that's nice. And they basically found that in most cases, again, reintroduced either a partial or full dose of tacrolimus at days eight and 10 after the course of, of Paxlovid, basically. So they go into some detail on this in, in the University of, of Liverpool website, and I'd highly advise you to do this. But the bottom line here is that, is that yeah, being on tacrolimus, as you, I would 
immediately think would be a no-go for being on, on Paxlovid because of, of its high no, narrow therapeutic range index and, and high risk of drug interactions. But there actually is a way to get around it and perhaps get this drug to uh, sick patients who are at high, high risk for some of the serious outcomes associated with COVID. And then finally, before we go to break, uh, something I wanted to really quick talk about too was this whole notion of, of COVID rebound after Paxlovid or Paxlovid rebound, however, however you want to phrase that basically. And basically the CDC is saying is that what they've noted and certainly has been noted on social media is that patients who do take a Paxlovid in some cases after their five-day course, they may find that their symptoms got better during the five-day course and they may even turn their rapid antigen test may even turn negative. But then uh, after that, they get a rebound of symptoms and the antigen testing comes back positive. And so this has kind of started as kind of a, a murmuring in social media, but is, is, is now been kind of demonstrated and, and I think is, is, is kind of a known phenomenon of this. Now, again, keep in mind that Paxlovid was not studied as far as symptom reduction or to decrease spread, you know, or, or time to, you know, till, till PCRs were negative or anything like that. It was studied to decrease hospitalizations and death. And so I'm not really sure what to do with that because again, we have kind of a conspiracy theorist or kind of like saying, oh, you know, this means Paxlovid doesn't even work. No, and that, you know, again, Paxlovid works great if the goal is to keep people out of the hospital or dying. And that's kind of what we were using it for. And so, you know, I, I think there's been this kind of thought, yeah, especially in, in the public mind, to kind of, you know, e equate Paxlovid with, say, Tamiflu. And why do people take Tamiflu? They take Tamiflu so their symptoms get better quicker. You know, that may happen yet with Paxlovid, but Paxlovid rebound certainly does not suggest that it's a failed regimen or anything along those lines. Now, interestingly, there's already been some preprints on this. Um, you know, I guess that's the, the beauty of, of, of preprints. And I've come across a couple, actually, that have looked at some of these patients who have had so-called, you know, Paxlovid rebound, and, and they basically drawn levels and looked at antiviral susceptibility. So I've actually gotten a virus from the patients and then taken a look at both susceptibilities of the virus to Paxlovid or whether Paxlovid had something to do with, with blocking antibodies, because that's something else that's kind of going around the popular media is that maybe, you know, Paxlovid is blocking your own antibodies from working. And so far, several papers have, again, just kind of case series of or case reports have come out, and they have found both the exact same thing, that that we don't know the cause of, of Paxlovid rebound of symptoms, but it is not resistance because they found that when they actually pulled the virus from these patients and actually subjected it to antiviral susceptibilities, there was not a resistance to, to, uh, to Paxlovid. And Paxlovid had no effect on, on neutralizing antibodies, and so it didn't decrease levels of that as well. So we don't know the cause of it. I've heard some say that maybe in some patients that a seven or 10-day course of Paxlovid is actually what is needed, and that might, that might abrogate some, some of the stuff associated with this rebound, and that's being studied as, as we speak, some longer courses. But bottom line is that based on the data we have now, you can do a pretty good job of just saying, no, this, this actually has nothing to do with resistance or anything along those lines. And in fact, so far, we haven't seen resistance at all. Now, you know, we probably will eventually, but haven't seen resistance at all. So, so that's why I did want to kind of touch some base on, on so-called Paxlovid rebound. So Jake is going to join me and get, and get me to stop talking for a while. And he's going to talk about another very important issue with access to, to this antiviral and, that, and that's um, issues of equity and making sure that, uh, patients who, you know, who may not have a chance to get the drug do so. And we're going to do that 
And finally, it is worth noting that the, the natural course of COVID in some patients is kind of maybe a waxing and waning course that some patients may initially feel better after a few days and then have a, a return. And, and CDC actually mentioned that last month in, in a uh, communication from, from that organization, you know, saying that do the natural course of, 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 of the disease in some patients that they get better at first, then they get worse again, then they get better again. And that's irrespective of any treatment or vaccination or anything along those lines. And again, talking about all things Paxlovid today, because <laughs> I've got a lot of questions about it. And, and uh, again, I want to re-welcome back, back uh, uh, Jake Galdo uh, from CE Impact. Jake's also a community pharmacist, and uh, Jake is going to talk a little bit about another really important thing, and this is true, I think, in all areas of medicine, certainly here, is, is, is equity. You know, How do we make sure that patients who may not normally have access to medications or historically don't get access to such medications do so? So, Jake, what do you think about all that? Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jeff, and thanks for, for giving me an opportunity to kind of talk about this piece of it, because I think it's really important. You know, when we look at the, the, the role of pharmacists in COVID treatment, you know, it's been a changing dynamic over the past three years, and it continues to evolve. And I think one of the biggest things is that we, are, we as a profession, as pharmacists, are saying, let us do more, let us help, let us augment the care that's going on. And so from that public health lens, you know, community pharmacists are really well poised to help and, and address a lot of inequities within healthcare. We can see that you know, 90% of the American population is within two miles of a pharmacy. Uh, there's data out there that says the average patient and even Medicare beneficiaries specifically, we did a podcast about this a couple years ago, go to the community pharmacist more than they go to primary care. Uh, you know, the data out of North Carolina says that you go to, to a pharmacy on average 35 times a year um, and then you look at the, the Medicare data that was published in JAMA, and it says, you know, the average Medicare beneficiary visits a pharmacy 13 times a year versus on average about eight times to their primary care or to a medical provider. And so there's this huge opportunity for pharmacists to make a difference in patient lives. And it is wonderful and it's exciting. Uh, but we need to be great partners to our prescribing colleagues, the physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. And a lot of that gets into transmitting equitable data. And I use that, that word a little bit of a pun right there. Uh, but we use equitable data to each other to make sure that we give equitable care to our patients. Right. And what I'm, what I'm really getting at here is that when we think about healthcare, there is a lot of data that, that doesn't get transmitted from one person to the next. We, we tend to go off of this, this idea of least common denominator of data sharing, and that's creating problems in care. And so if we use Paxlovid as a specific example, you know, to go through the patient eligibility screening checklist that the, the FDA has given to prescribers and to pharmacists takes about 20 minutes. Like it takes a while to go through all of the, the criterium for a patient to make sure that they are eligible for this, that there's no drug-drug interactions. You just gave a lot of really great examples about that. Um, and it takes time. And there's laboratory monitoring that also goes into it. We didn't really right. talk too much about it, but I mean, this, this therapy has to be adjusted for renal impairment and, and hepatic impairment. Right. And so we sit here at a public health level and we say, do test and treat. And that can be at a pharmacy where the pharmacist tests for COVID and then treats for COVID, or it could be test and treat where the, the you know, urgent care clinic tests for COVID and then the pharmacist treats the COVID with that test result. And so we're working collaboratively. But what is scary and what is happening is that we don't share enough 
data to make sure that that is happening with the right dose. Right. And I think that that's kind of the, the public health spin that I want to kind of share is that we need to be more open about sharing data. Um, you know, I look at community pharmacy data. I work with, with pharmacy data, looking at pharmacy quality and the performance of pharmacies having access. Pharmacists have access to serum creatinine, but they don't get it. They don't collect it. We have one pharmacy, uh, 2% of their geriatric patients have a serum creatinine on file. 2%, right. which means of the, the 200 some odd geriatric patients at that pharmacy, four of them have a documented serum creatinine. Right. So the ability of the pharmacist is there, but the data is not. And so then how can the pharmacist do a really good job of that test and treat if they're not sure about the dose? Right. But then if we switch this and talk about equity and making sure all persons have equal access to care, that again really changes this story because from an equity standpoint, we can again look at community pharmacy data and see that pharmacy management systems can uh, document a patient's race. They can document a patient's ethnicity. We can document a patient's gender. Uh, and as we, we heard from Anissa with that gender affirming care, we need to do better there. Yeah. Most pharmacy management systems say male or female, yet our U.S. passports have male, female, and then an X denotation right. for those that, that may not identify as, as you know, Non, non-binary individuals. When we look at the data in pharmacy, and I know that this is long-winded, but I want to I want to raise the awareness of this. We're seeing where you know 40 to 50 percent of pharmacies have a complete patient profile with race, ethnicity, and gender documented. Yet it's all the rate. The only race documented is white. Right. And so we have this huge opportunity to better collect data at the pharmacy, because this goes back to the public health spin. The U.S. government has come out time and time again and said, we need to make sure that Paxlovid is getting into the hands of the patients that need it. And for the government to say that, they need to have uh, transparency on who is getting it. And with a lot of pharmacists providing care, but not documenting data, we have this gap in data, so we're unable to really identify barriers to access. And I think that that's a huge problem and something that we can start to resolve with, with more awareness and just documenting, you know, the care that we provide. All right. No, I agree. So, and, you know, and, and I, this translates into Paxlovid again, because again, can we work as a, as a system, especially local health systems, to make sure, you know, to, to take that extra time and extra effort to make sure that patients who may not normally even think about the medication or have access or can get to a pharmacy where they can get it, et cetera, et cetera, that they, are, you know, have every, every, you know, every chance they have to benefit from this medication as anybody else does. So it, it, it is pretty important. So excellent. Anything else you'd like to talk about? No, I think that that's the big thing. The other thing is just, you know, make sure you've got your screening checklist. Make sure, you, you know, when we operationalize this in a pharmacy, you know, you, you mentioned sometimes doing extended uh, therapy that is off-label, even though this whole thing is kind of off-label as a, as a EUA type, type therapy. Um, but the, the caveat that I would give to our pharmacists that are doing test and treat is that you're going off of protocols, you're going off of PrEP Act authorization, you've got to keep uh, on quote unquote on label as much as possible. Absolutely. And if something happens off label that has to come out from the prescriber and have kind of a conversation around that. So, you know, off label care is, is kind of non per protocol. And a lot of what pharmacists are doing is per protocol. So we need to make sure that we, we stay within our, our foul lines as we're providing this care. And then the, the only other thing is just reemphasizing isolation. 
you know, we right. see this rebound happening regardless of vaccination status, regardless of Paxlovid. And, you know, bottom line is it almost seems like we should just go back to quarantine for 10 days, though nobody wants to say that. Yeah, yeah well, you know, again, there's, uh, you know, there's so much pan- pandemic fan- fatigue among people, and I get it. But I mean, you know, as I've heard it said many times, just because we're sick of COVID doesn't mean COVID is sick of us. So yeah, I agree with you on that. So well, cool. Well, thanks, Jake. I really appreciate your your insight into this. And again, yeah, I mean, it's another real important issue. And again, not just for Paxlovid and not just for COVID, but for many, many, many areas, we know the evidence shows very clearly that we're not very good at, at equity in, in, in care, uh, you know, across different pa- patient populations. And pharmacists, I think, can play a big role in at least, you know, helping helping even that up because, as several studies have shown, we're the ones who are pretty accessible by to just about everybody else. So, well, that's it for this week of, of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.